Hello and welcome to another episode of Right Care Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. And I'm Amanda Comer. I'm a nurse practitioner and the system director for advanced practice providers. And today we welcome Jeannie Dean back on to talk about the upcoming E&M coding changes for inpatient and emergency medicine providers. Jeannie, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Um, can you just refresh the audience on uh, your role within the Baptist system? I am the director of coding and HIM, and uh, my department also oversees the auditing and all physician education. Well, thank you so much for coming back on the program. Everybody should remember back in 2021, where we did this for the outpatient providers, where AMA and CMS made the made the updates to what was required for when you write a note and and dropping an E&M coding change. So so tell us what we're looking forward to for 2023. Now everything is going to be uh, based on those guidelines. They they've added a couple of new things, but 95 and 97 guidelines are gone. Um, as of January 1st of 2023. So every evaluation and management code is going to be based on the same guidelines as we were introduced to in 2021. And just refresh our memory, the the new guidelines um, really highlight medical decision-making as opposed to ticking off this many review systems, this many physical exam findings, this many results that you reviewed, et cetera. So, so how is it different now, starting in January, from you know, what we're doing today? So it is, it's supposed to be more streamlined. The physicians are not going to have to worry about checking off boxes to make sure you have so many review systems and you have you know, so many elements in your history. Now it's going to be based on the medical decision-making or the thought process of the provider. So the history and the exam only needs to be problem pertinent, and that is determined by the provider. And the main focus is going to be on the plan of care and the treatment for the patient. So it should reduce a lot of documentation that the provider has to do because all of the unnecessary things that we have been, you know, teaching and telling all the providers to do since, you know, 1995, all of that now will go away. Okay, so we're really changing the way we're thinking. And let's start. So this is both for emergency medicine and inpatient. So let's start with emergency medicine. So that patient comes in. I don't necessarily need to to meet all checkboxes for review of systems and physical exam, only that problem pertinent information. And then my medical decision making is key. Is that correct? That is correct. So just remember when you are thinking about what you're going to document in the history and the exam, that kind of opens the door for um, proving medical necessity. So you want to make sure you you state enough 
in your history. Doesn't have to be a lot. It could be one, two sentences. And with the exam to where that's going to kind of your note is going to tell a story. It's good. Think about as a provider, when you go into a room and you see a patient, as soon as you see the patient and you know why they're there, you know, you may ask a few questions and then your thought process starts with, OK, here are the things I need to rule out here are, you know, this is the test I'm going to order to um, try to get me to the final decision. So your documentation is just going to show that that thought process. And, and you do not need any unnecessary information. It just needs to be, this is why the patient is presenting. So based on this information, maybe based on their history, I need to rule out X, Y, Z. So it's going to be very important to list differential diagnoses of what you're trying to rule out. Because a patient could come in with signs and symptoms that after you do the workup, the diagnosis may not be a high-risk diagnosis, but based on their signs and symptoms, you had to do a lot of things to rule out high risk. So you, it, the level could be a high level based on how well you document the signs and symptoms and everything that you had to rule out to get to the not high-risk diagnosis. So the, so, di the end diagnosis will not drive your level. Gotcha. Okay. So, so a patient just comes in with regular chest pain. I mean, obviously, that can run the gamut from, you know, serious MI to just maybe some musculoskeletal um, pain in their chest. But in the ED, you got to rule out the serious stuff before you can arrive at, you know, I, I have a sore muscle in my chest. So how is that different um, today versus you know, going forward in January 2023. So I don't know, is your medical decision making because you got to rule out all of those, um, you know, really life threatening diagnoses uh, is going to be higher, I guess, uh, going forward in January than it is now. So would that E&M coding be higher for chest pain, I guess, in January versus what it is now? I don't know if I'm, I'm kind of talking in circles, but I hope it makes sense. Yeah. So kind of think because chest pain is one of the ones that most ED providers are kind of panicking about hmm. because it could go either way. So with 95 guidelines, currently we do have all the check boxes. So let's just say we have two patients that come in with chest pain. Uh, both of them, their end diagnosis is just chest wall pain. You know, they pulled a muscle or something. Um, but both of those patients come in complaining of chest pain. The one patient, both of them have been working out. You know, they started a new exercise regimen or whatever. One patient has a very strong family history, cardiac um, disease. The other patient does not. So even though, you know, protocol may be EKG, um, chest x-ray and labs, you're going to look more at the patient that has the strong uh, family history of cardiac disease, maybe, than the patient that has no family history or medical history. And maybe you will add more tests or maybe you, you're going to think about ruling out more things on the patient that has the strong family history than the other patient. So that's where it's going to be very important. 
and and the provider needs to link those. So the things that they're thinking about ruling out because the other patient seems higher risk to them, all of that must be in there. Currently, those things are not important as much because you do not get credit for probable um, or considering or things like that. But in 2023, it's not really that you're going to get credit, but it's going to help show the risk of that patient and the medical necessity of the testing that you had to do. So it could be a higher level, even though both pa- both patients have an end diagnosis of chest wall strain or pain. Interesting. So the, at the very end, the patients have the same diagnosis, but because one had a kind of a higher risk than the other, it's going to it's going to make that medical decision making just a little bit more complex and bump them up, I guess, on that um, calculated NBM level. Yes. So one could be a four and the other could be a five with the same ending diagnosis. Just because of that complex medical decision making. So this all sounds good to me. You know, it it sounds like I'm I'm documenting what is pertinent. I am um, including my thought process to get to um, the final diagnoses. Tell me what is, I guess, what's the negative of this? Is there? Well, there there can be a negative only. Um, some of the things that maybe were lower acuity problems, especially in the ED, for instance, of medical decision-making, 95 guidelines in the ED, a level three and a level four, both of those were moderate medical decision-making. So, you know, if, depending on what you had in your history and your exam, the points could potentially have gotten you maybe to a four, whereas now it may get you to only a level three because now they are not the same. So in 2023, a level three is low um, complexity medical decision making and a level four is moderate, which, you know, it, it, it makes sense that there should be a difference between them. But let's, let's say you're seeing the patient has multiple acute illnesses and you're going to give them a prescription. If those multiple conditions are not interacting with each other and making that patient a higher risk, even though you give them a prescription, you're probably going to be at a three now. Um, Let's just say you have bronchitis and strep throat and you get a prescription. If that would probably be a level three, unless, you know, there's a history of asthma or other things that are making that patient higher risk. One of the ways to think about it is if you have patients coming in with the same conditions, And this is how I think it's an advantage for the provider. Now you get to tell us in your medical documentation why you look at this patient different than the patient that has the same symptoms coming in. And and then that's that's going to be the key to for this, regardless if it's ED or uh, another location, because that is what's going to be able to push your level to where it should be. 
And that's the part that providers are not used to doing. Because to them, it's common sense, you know, well, of course, I'm going to, you know, order X, Y, Z on this patient because of their uh, their personal medical history. But, but you have to say that now. So like if a patient has asthma, you know, it'd be common sense to a provider to order certain tests or to rule out certain things. But now you have to put that you have to link that. In your documentation. So tell us all what all goes into determining that medical decision making level. Um, so, you know, there's, I guess, low, medium and high. Is that how you would say it? And then those are based on the problems that were addressed, the data, the complexity, okay. the complexity of the problem that was addressed. Com- now, the key word to that is the problem addressed. The only way something is considered problem addressed is if you are managing or doing something to that problem. If another provider is managing that problem and you simply state that, um, like if they, if another provider put them on a medication and you're just stating the patient is on this medication as prescribed by Dr. Smith, you would not get credit. That is not a problem addressed by you. So, that, so you know, if we had a patient that was inpatient, uh, maybe they're a dialysis patient and nephrology was managing uh, that piece. And I include and I as a hospital, you know, included patient dialysis every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, consulted nephrology. That does not factor into my medical decision making. Is that correct? Correct. Unless the patient has another chronic condition or something going on that the dialysis uh, is going to make that problem worse or you have to consider it, you know, when treating the chronic condition or maybe the patient has a chronic condition and you need to stop a medication or or something while the patient is receiving treatment for the kidney disease in the hospital. You would want to make sure that you state that because just simply listing the dialysis you would not get credit for that because you a hospitalist would not be managing that problem. So you have to be actively managing it. So if I had a really complex patient and I consulted cardiology, nephrology, infectious disease, maybe they're in, you know, they got heart failure and they got pneumonia and they got insane adrenal disease, very complex patient. But this, all of the consultants and specialists are really managing those prescriptions for that patient and I'm kind of you know coordinating between the specialists how would that factor into medical decision making so they you so a hospitalist is you know typically managing the chronic illnesses so that's what the medical decision making would be based on unless again some of those other conditions that are being managed is changing your decision on how to manage the chronic conditions for the patient. Now, let's just say um, pulmonology or cardiology, you know, has signed off on the patient, but the patient's still going to be in the hospital for a couple of days, and they're going to need to continue the medication that the cardiologist um, started. For the patient, as long as the hospitalist states that, because now they're kind of managing that 
medication, you know, for the duration of the patient's stay. So very important to say that and to make sure that, you know, it's clear cardiology has signed off on the patient, but patient is to continue this medication for, you know, the next two, three days, then they would get credit um, for prescription drug management because at that point they are managing the medication. That one's tough. Yes. Okay. And is it the same for initial H&P and subsequent visits in the hospital or is it all, yeah, so do these, I guess, these medical decision-making guidelines and what has to be in your note, does it apply to, to everything or is it only in subsequent, for instance? It's everything. And here's where it also gets a little more complicated with hospital admissions. So let's say patient comes through the ED and they're having chest pain and they're going to be admitted. The ED provider calls cardiology. Cardiology says, yes, you know, please admit the patient. Cardiology calls the hospitalist and says, hey, can you admit this patient? I'll be by to see them in the morning. That is just protocol that the hospitalist is just admitting the patient. So they may not get as high of a level versus if ED state said the patient um, needs to be admitted and the hospitalist is making that decision mm. to admit them, then they would get all of the, you know, uh, they could potentially get a higher level because they are managing and making the decision for the admission. Because oh, both yeah. could not get credit. You, you know what I'm saying? The um, Because the hospitalist and the cardiologist both would be billing an initial visit code, mm -hmm. but the admitting provider, there's a you know modifier that they have to put on there, but kind of think about it. Two providers can't get credit for the same thing, for managing the same thing. And so how does, you know, so you, I can sense that maybe some dynamics with how we admit and consult other providers may change based on this. Do you foresee that happening? No, what I see is we will not know. I mean, uh, by looking at the documentation, the documentation doesn't tell you if the specialist called the hospitalist in advance and asked them to do the admission for them. You know, all, all we have to go on is the documentation. So if a hospitalist is doing the initial H&P, we assume they are doing the admission and they're deciding the admission for that patient. So, you know, for instance, orthopedic injuries, hip fracture, something like that. A lot of times they'll call the hospitalist to admit the patient, even if the hospitalist is you know, mainly just managing medications. You know, sometimes they're not even on any medicines, um, and uh, the orthopedic surgeon's really doing everything. Um, how will I guess billing for that and that consultant piece change moving forward. So kind of look at it as um, medical necessity and the overall, um, because everything is based on the number and complexity, you know, the problem addressed, any data, and then the risk of complications in management of patients. 
So if the hospitalist is just admitting the patient or the specialist, you know, are they just doing the paperwork to admit the patient? And the specialist is going to be in to see them first thing because as of right now, maybe the patient is stable. Um, I mean, I'm sure the hospitalist is going to look over everything, but that's where it's going to be kind of, you know, difficult and maybe some of the documentation or practices on how the admissions work may need to change because it it's back to the problem addressed. Are they, is the hospitalist really addressing the problem or just, you know, kind of doing the paperwork for the admission of the patient? That's interesting. Okay. It is interesting, and it will be interesting to see, um, you know, a year from now, if we do see changes, like you said, in the dynamics of consulting and um, what that looks like. For here's a, a, This is a perfect example, like the orthopedic. Um, if, ortho, if ortho spoke to the ED provider and it's an open fracture and they're like, oh, yes, they're definitely, you know, going to have to have surgery tomorrow. So the decision for surgery was made by the orthopedic surgeon. But when a hospitalist does that H&P to admit the patient, the hospitalist is going to say the patient is being admitted uh, because they're going to be scheduled for surgery for their open fracture. So they couldn't get credit for the decision for surgery. Um, or escalating the patient's care or for the decision to admit the patient because the orthopedic made all of those decisions. Gotcha. So it could be, you know, moderate or high medical decision-making calculated MDM level for the orthopedic surgeon, but a low for the hospitalist for the same patient. Or straightforward or straightforward for hospitalists. And what is, what is straightforward? Straightforward is a level two. Level so there two. is no longer a level one. Okay. Um, for like ED or, um, you know, office. But, you know, we still have the three levels for the admission. But, yes, so it could be it could be a level one for the hospitalist. Gotcha. So what if the patient the doesn't. Hospitalist to really describe their medical decision making related to. Maybe the other problems that that patient might have that they're helping with, such as managing their diabetes prior to surgery or something like that. Or hypertension, um, you know, something like that. Okay. And what about, so you, you mentioned the complexity of the problems addressed is really what's driving a lot of this. But is there anything else, you know, I, I thought I saw where, if you know, you review external notes or results, or unique tests that you ordered. Um, yeah. How do those factor in? So each each section, whether it's uh, straightforward, low, moderate, or high, there's also amount of complexity data and reviewed. And then you, uh, depending on which level, there's certain combinations. But for instance, ordering lab work, each unique test, a unique test. Think of CPT. So a panel that would include multiple tests that would only count as one. 
So um, if there's one code for everything, then that's counted as a unique test. If you order the test, then it's expected that you're going to read it. So here's another example of how this is going to be so different. It's the ED provider versus hospital. ED, if the patient's seen in the ED and that provider orders tests, you know, they're going to read them. It's expected that they're going to read them. So still, you would only get credit for each unique test ordering and reviewing. But let's say that patient is admitted to the hospital and someone in someone, you know, in your clinic or um, they order tests to say cardiology or hospitalist. They do rounds. They see the patient this morning and they order certain labs. And then tomorrow, another partner in um, your clinic is the one that rounds on the patient and reviews the lab work results. Both cannot get credit. So a decision will have to be made primarily is who right now best practice is the person that orders the uh, test is who gets credit. But then you're going to have the next provider in your same practice that's seeing them the next day that's actually going to be reviewing the labs that you ordered or any test that you ordered. But they're not going to get credit for that because the credit already went to your partner the day before. Interesting. So, you know, patient comes in through the ED, you know, ED doc orders a bunch of labs, CT, MRI, all of that. The ED provider gets credit for that, those tests that were ordered. But the hospitalist or whoever specialist comes after when they're admitting that patient, it, it's a clean slate and it starts over. And so you don't get credit for what was ordered and done by the ED or can you get do you get credit for reviewing that information that came in? Correct, because it's not because it's not in your practice. So you cannot get credit um, for reviewing something that was ordered or reviewed by someone in your practice. Oh, gotcha. So if I'm a, your, if I'm a hospitalist, I can get credit. Is but if I'm another ED doc seeing the patient afterwards, I wouldn't get credit. Correct. Okay. And that's a change. Yes. So okay. another thing to keep in mind is, let's say that patient's been admitted because there was a fall or something, and I'm a cardiologist because patient also has heart problems, and I go in and I have in my note as cardiologist that I reviewed the CT of the head. Then I'm going to need to say why I did that because I'm I'm cardiology. Why why I'm reviewing the CT of the head. Gotcha. And then what else factors into the calculated MDM level? Um, I see risk of complications from uh, the testing and treatment also, also yes. can factor in. Okay. Yes. Take us through that. So it's um, me. This is a lot of this is what has always been like prescription drug management decision for minor major surgery. The only thing to keep in mind about those is remember that it is patient 
and procedure pertinent. So, you know, of course, we know every surgery, minor or major, has its own um, risk of complications, but you want to make sure you relate those to the patient. And sometimes not doing anything you get credit for because maybe the normal is surgery, but based on other things that are going on with the patient, it's best not to do surgery. So that also plays into the risk. So like I said, sometimes not doing something is just as important as why you would want to do something. Um, And then the decision to escalate care, admit or escalate care. So admit would be more like for the ED, but if the patient's already in the hospital and maybe now they need to go to ICU um, and you need to escalate the care, you want to make sure you document that because that could automatically put you up to, you know, high risk. And then, you know, social determinants of health, that's more clinic based, but the main things with the uh, in rounding hospital uh, patients is if the surgeries, make sure you identify the risk because the normal risk, you do not automatically get credit for that. You know, you need to state and make it relevant to the patient. And then, and again, it's important to state if you're not going to do something and why. And then if you're going to escalate care. The other thing to remember is observation codes are now the same, will now be the same as your inpatient codes. Okay, even, but you can still admit a patient to OBS, right? But you're just going to be submitting the same code regardless of his inpatient or OBS? Correct, but the place of service will be different. Now, something that is new for hospital inpatient, which I think is a win, is now new versus established is based on that encounter of when the patient was admitted. So let's say that you see a patient in your clinic, um, whether you're a cardiologist or uh, primary care, but they are an established patient for you in your clinic. Currently, if you go and see them, if they're admitted in the hospital, they're they're an established patient because you're already treating them. Now, the first time you go see them during that admission to the hospital, that is an initial visit for you. You do not have to do subsequent, which is what we have to do now. What about if you know you're in a hospitalist group and I'm seeing the patient one day, then my partner sees them the next day? Is that new visit for both? No, it's based on specialty and subspecialty. So if you're within the same specialty or subspecialty, same group, then you know you're considered the same provider. Hmm. Okay, so I'm a hospitalist, and I saw a patient, they were discharged, they're readmitted in two weeks. That will be a new patient on that second visit, right? Yes, and it's always been like that for hospitals. But like specialists, it it hasn't. That's new for specialists. Okay. What about time-based billing? I know on the outpatient side, that was added in 2021. Is that for the inpatient as well? Yes, there is. 
Yes, there are inpatient. Um, each code has a time associated with it for you just not in the emergency department. You cannot use time in the emergency department to determine your level. Okay. And what about critical care? Has that changed as well? It's you can share. I mean, it's the same except for, you know, the share split share. But those guidelines are the same. The big win also this year for 2023 is they delayed um, the split share guidelines because 2023 all split share visits were supposed to be time based only. So now they have delayed that to 2024. Okay. So no changes to split share. And, and what about, um, you know, I asked critical care. I think you heard split share, but that was good information too. What about for ICU docs? Is there, is this affecting them as well? No, it was, the, it, it will be the same. Okay. The same as it is now or same for? Yes. Okay. The same so they're not changing. Correct. Okay. So tell me, how can I prepare, you know, for January 1, 2023? Would it be beneficial to reevaluate my templates? As a clinician, I, what can I do? I think the easiest transition will be if you can start with a clean slate because all of the templates and macros and smart phrases, everything that's out there right now has been based on you need so many of this and, you know, so much unnecessary information that you need. So I think the easiest transition for providers is going to be you have the correct templates and macros and smart for whatever you use. You just need to start fresh instead of what you already have. Because if you continue to use what you already have, you're going to be spending so much time pulling in information that is not going to help your level. You know, yeah. it, 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 you know, we ran into this when we transitioned on the outpatient side, almost nobody changed their templates because it auto populates everything just auto populates in there. Um, but the and so it's, it's not a, as much of a time saving for the person writing the note. But it is when you're reviewing other people's notes, because right now everything's buried. Um, you can't find what was actually changed, what was updated, what was pertinent. And so you're digging through these long, long notes with a bunch of irrelevant details. I can tell you um, when I attended the AMA conference a few weeks ago, one of the things that um, they stated that they're going to expect to see and start looking for since all of this is all the evaluation management is going to be based you know, in the same documentation guidelines is they would expect to no longer see copy and paste and pull forward of notes because everything should now in 2023, everything in your notes should be pertinent to that visit and the problems addressed and your thought process for that patient for that, that visit. So they are, they have stated you know, and the OIG has stated those are some of the things they're going to start looking for uh, once everyone's kind of had time to adjust. Because I, what would be the point in copy uh, and paste and pull an entire note forward? 
Yeah, no, I mean, we went through this a lot on the outpatient side. Yeah. They wanted to keep that old history so they could, you know, more easily understand what had happened. A lot of people are going to want that that problem list to be copied forward so that they, you know, that coding, you know, knows what was what was there. Um, but yeah, it, it certainly is a big opportunity. It would be interesting to see if they took a strong stance and copy and paste and got rid of it. But I wouldn't be opposed. Uh, all right. So I know, you know we've gone on for quite some time. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, but Jeannie, what are some final takeaways? What, what are some things you want the medical staff to know? Most important things before we close out. I guess my main thing would be is try to look at this as this is something to make a provider's life easier. Because now it truly is going to be based on the provider's work. And all you really have to do is document your work and your thoughts for that patient at that encounter. And you don't have to worry about all the other things. You just truly now it is based on the provider's decision making, which is great. I mean, you know, I think, but it's just remember to document even things that you may think, well, that's common sense. Just make sure you're putting your entire thought process and why you're wanting to do certain things in writing. Good advice. Well, thank you again for coming on and explaining this to us. Um, we may have to have you back on in the spring. We'll see how it goes after January. But uh, thank you, everybody, also for listening to another episode of Right Care Baptist. Remember, if you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem this episode for CME credit.